Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. I have a very special show this week, um, special for a few reasons. One, it is the last show before we go on a uh, quick hiatus. Well, quick um, is relative. It'll be four weeks. And it's special because I'm talking to my friend Alice Wong. Uh, She's a disabled rights activist. Uh, She's based in San Francisco. She's the editor of an upcoming anthology by Vintage Books. It'll be available in June. It's called Disability Visibility, First Person Stories from the 21st Century. And she's going to offer a first person story. The disability rights community, the disability community, the disabled community, however you want to say it, um, is mostly invisible to able-bodied people. Invisible in such a deep way that when I told folks over at Crooked that I'd be talking to a disabled rights activist about the stimulus bill, I got responses like, oh, oh, right, yes. Um, When you think about it, you know, those people have a big investment and the kinds of changes we're talking about making to our economy and our healthcare system. And Alice is so up to date about all of that, and she's gonna talk about it. And I wanna give a little bit of a content warning. Um, It's a short conversation, but it is fairly intense. If you don't wanna think about these things, come back when you're ready. I think it'll be worth it. Coming right up, Alice Wong. Alice, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back on. And in case people are wondering why I am interviewing Darth Vader, um, I guess people should know you are a full-time Vent user, correct? That's right. So you have some expertise on a lot of the issues we're going to be talking about, basically, and obviously a personal stake in it. I want to get started with some of the drier stuff, maybe, but really, really important, which is in this stimulus bill that the Senate passed, um, and in, at the point we're recording, we don't know if the House is going to pass it yet, but the, the Senate version that passed, um, people may not realize there's a lot in it that will affect members of this uh, disabled community. Um, it's like one in five Americans are disabled. Is that correct? That's right. Roughly, uh, you know, pretty much almost one in four, but I think... Yeah, it's like one in five, but it's very much everybody knows somebody with a disability, whether they realize it or not. You know, anybody with cancer, HIV, asthma, you know, arthritis. I mean, that's basically almost everyone. And there's a lot of disabilities that are not apparent. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people may not ever use the word disability, but under the Americans with Disabilities Act, they are definitely, you know, part of this community. And they might be affected, a good percentage of them might be affected by this bill because it it sort of monkeys around with Medicaid. That's kind of the nut of the financial piece that the disability rights activists are concerned with. Is that correct? Absolutely. There's been a lot of, uh, you know, grassroots activism regarding every kind of coronavirus relief bill, but especially this one and the third one, which is I think called the CARES Act, which Mm -hmm. is going to be voted on 
later today, and uh, there's a lot of things that were kind of like, again, disabled people are kind of left out in terms of what's covered and what's not, and as a lot of the provisions would actually create more difficulties for disabled people. Like, I think people, a lot of people don't realize that one of the the big problems with Medicaid is that it has a very strict cap on how much you can not just earn, but own, right? Like, you can't have assets above a certain number. And the numbers that they're throwing around for um, the stimulus bills in terms of, like, the checks they might cut, those, while they may seem small to some people— like, those are enough that you could kick a person off of disability should they get this check. Absolutely. I mean, I have a... So just to share with you all, uh, so I'm on Medicaid, and it, uh, California is called Medi-Cal, and basically, I cannot have more than $2,000 in my checking account. So if you think about these relief... Uh, you know, uh, packages where they say, oh, you know, we did a check, uh, every person, maybe a check for $1,000 for people who are, you know, on program-based tested programs, such as Medicaid, such as Social Security, uh, $1,000 is going to wreck a person's budget and a person's kind of you know, uh, ability to kind of be eligible. So, in many ways, they can't, either they don't cash the check, or like they just, they won't be able to benefit from it. And I think that's, you know, that's really huge in the sense that it's going to disproportionately hurt people to really actually need the help. They're the people who need the help the most. And because we're all been told over and over that there's a vulnerable population, right? Which I I would get you are a member of that vulnerable population in more ways than one, should you catch this. Um, and many other people on disability as well. And they, they need the help the most. Um, and yet the kinds of ideas that are getting thrown around might actually wind up hurting them. Yeah, and I think we've seen also, you know, way before this bill, uh, you know, Medicaid work requirements, uh, mm-hmm. block grants, you know, states are already putting a lot of restrictions and eligibility and just, you know, the, the, the kinds of services that they offer. So already there is huge, you know, scrutiny. Did a lot of hurdles for people to even qualify and receive Medicaid, but also for the fact that, you know, a relief bill where receiving a check could really mess them up, you know, really permanently is really, you know, outrageous. And I think uh, there's been a lot of work uh, by disabled activists and advocates that people on the Hill to make sure that these uh, stimulus payments do not put benefits at risk. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't think we have a copy of, of the bill right now, but I mean, I'm really hoping that that's in it, because I know that there was a lot of work uh, that you, people should check out the 
Gosh, Jennifer, what we did, mm-hmm. we just started by disabled folks about what we did in these kinds of bills to really make sure that we're covered up. You know, not just the whole idea that, you know, eligibility for these programs will be at risk, but there's also other things. Uh, for example, you know, uh, paid leave and insured, you know, paid sick days should also cover caregivers, you know, family caregivers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was covered, I think, in the House bill, but it wasn't up to up to yesterday or, you know, very recently at this Senate bill. So that's another example that really impacts the disability community and also just access to 90 day supplies mm-hmm. of medications or medical supplies or just you know, long-term services of supports for a lot of folks, you know, who are told to stay home and uh, practice social distancing, you know, any way to make sure that we have what we need, you know, mm-hmm. is really important. Yeah, I think that people might not think about how uh, if you're a disabled person, some of the restrictions that we think of as annoying are actually about life or death. Um, that 90-day supply of medication, for instance. Um, if someone who's already, because of a physical disability in a vulnerable population to the coronavirus, and they have to leave their house to go get, <laughs> you know, or ha- or come just come in contact with someone, right, to get that, that 30-day supply, like that's just one more point of contact where they're putting themselves at risk. And then there's this other big thing, right, which is that we've been told over and over and we see, we see that community-based living for either, you know, seniors or people who are disabled is now everyone knows how dangerous that is. But because of the in, the, the bias towards putting disabled people in institutions, like there's a whole bunch of disabled people living in communities that they're now unsafe. And what is going to happen to to those people? Exactly. And I think this is where, you know, we need to keep the infrastructure that we have already, and, you know, with the people who are living in the community so that they can remain in the community. And that means, you know, making sure that their healthcare providers are, you know, paid and also just, you know, making sure that they're also, you know, very much part of, you know, the, uh, supported as well, because I think that's one of the things that's so difficult about living in the community is to be able to have, you know, a set of supports and services that are community-based, because sometimes it is a little bit trickier to have, you know, hire people from, you know, individuals that manage them, but for so many people like, I, like myself, I mean, that is the same kind of rights that anybody has to make decisions about how they want to spend their life. And, um, you know, we've seen how dangerous hospitals, nursing homes can be for these outbreaks. And, you know, for people who are maybe hospitalized after uh, becoming infected, if they lose 
their home community-based services. I am very fearful that, you know, the only option they have is to go into a dirty home or some sort of facility because that's what Medicaid will cover. So this is another really big issue, too. Because the absolute safest thing to do would be to have the government cover the cost of a personal uh, aid, right? Like that would be the thing that makes the most sense, which has always made the most sense, correct? Yeah, and I think the thing is that we don't really understand how, you know, it, how little we value the workforce that does this work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, you know, it's a, this is a labor issue, it's a social justice issue, it's a, it's a disability rights issue, you know, we really... You know, the workers that come into our homes every day, whether they're domestic workers or home care providers, home health aides, they work for very little, with very little benefits, with very little economic security. So, you know, we're almost two basically very marginalized populations mm-hmm. that are incredibly interdependent on one another. It is hard to decide uh, who to hire for a job. In politics, I think it's especially hard because people tend to assume that there's stuff you should uh, have on your resume that I'm not sure how useful it is. How useful is being a lawyer um, when you're a senator? Does that really help you decide what's best for everybody if all you've done is been in a court? I don't know. But that seems to be the thing that people agree on. Well, if you're hiring for something that's not a senator— there is someone that can help you decide how to fill the job that you're hiring for. It is ZipRecruiter. You can try ZipRecruiter for free if you're listening to me right now. If you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends, ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 top job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right skills and experiences for your job and actively invites them to apply. You can add screening questions to your job listing so you can filter candidates and focus on the best fit. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. To try ZipRecruiter for free, Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We are supported by Le Tote. Le Tote is the fashion rental service where you can choose the clothes and accessories you want to wear. Le Tote's mission is to make fashion accessible to every woman every day. Whether you are someone who doesn't have time to shop at the mall or maybe has some other reasons that you're not going to go to the mall, or if you're someone who likes to try all the latest styles without going to the mall, <laughs> Latote is your friend. All you have to do is sign up on Latote, that's L-E-T-O-T-E dot com for a flat monthly fee and you get access to their entire closet. Choose the clothes and accessories you'd like to rent and you can think about where you would like to wear them. Once the box of fashion reaches your door, wear everything out or in and for about as long as you would like. When you're done, just send your items back in the prepaid envelope. They even do the laundry. Having something new to wear has never been this affordable and easy, and I emphasize you do not have to leave your house to do it. Le Tote is offering 40% off your first two months to our listeners. Visit letote.com and use code FRIENDS1 to get your discount today. Why buy when you can borrow? 
since we've turned to the topic of hospitalizations and and um, and also free will to a certain extent, um, making choices for oneself, I, I want to bring up something that's a much more personal aspect of the situation we're dealing with now, which is this idea that we don't have enough medical supplies to go around. Um, we've already seen in Italy um, doctors admitting that they have to make choices about who lives and dies. As someone who's on a ventilator, I'm sure every time people talk about the shortage, maybe, I don't know, but what happens for you when when you hear people talk about this massive shortage of ventilators? How does that feel for you? Yeah, I mean, I've never heard, like, ventilators, I think that word uttered so many times. <laughs> on the national news, I'm like, seriously? Like, now we're talking about this? Okay, yeah. I think, first of all, people don't really even know, like, what they do is different types. I mean, I'm using one that's called a BiPAP, and it's what's called a non-invasive mm-hmm. ventilator. I wear a mask over my nose, and it helps me breathe. And I am, it's part of my body. It's, yeah, it's, uh, I cannot sleep, breathe, and do much of anything without it. So, Already, you know, even with, let's say, a regular cold or bronchitis, you know, it wipes me out. I have very little reserve in terms of just being able to fight off infection and just, you know, uh, recover. And, you know, hearing these stories all over, it's just, you know, it really hurts, actually. I think it's uh, very traumatic. It brings back you know, just my own sense of just mortality. And, you know, I've always felt vulnerable. And I've always, you know, been aware that I'm a marginalized person. But when people so casually are so ageist and ableist, you know, I so much of this already kind of like... You know, people laughing about the coronavirus or, you know, people just making a joke that, like, you know, don't worry, most of us will recover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, but they say most of us, they're talking about, like, the average non-disabled person. So, like, that's, again, they're, they're not talking about the people who are, you know, really going to be impacted. And they kind of forget that there's a lot of us of all different ages, not just older people so it it shows time and time again when we have these major crises like who does our society really value Mm -hmm. and you know clearly within this capitalist framework you know certain people are much more valuable than others and we see that with the guidelines that various healthcare systems and states are Creating right now, where they have to decide who gets services, who gets treatments, who gets ventilators. And a lot of these measures are based on our ideas of what is valuable. And again, people like me who rely on others for help, who rely on 
technology like this are not given the same benefits and the same, the same chances, even though we want to live just as much as anybody else. I mean, it just must be something else. If it's, if it's, I I can imagine how traumatic it is just to see people be um, casual about the disease itself. But the other thing that I imagine, I I, I hope this isn't too triggering right now. I'm, I'm I, is that people are talking very casually and in the open about who lives and who dies. They're talking about having to make that decision. People just kind of bring it up. And unfortunately, this is a decision people, again, able-bodied, non-disabled people probably do not realize that kind of decision gets made a lot, right? Like doctors deciding this person's quality, quote, quality of life will not be good. And so therefore, I am not going to give the kind of care and attention to this person as I would to someone whose, quote, unquote, quality of life is going to be better. I mean, this must be, I mean, I, I would be terrified, I guess. This is, I would be hard, I would be very scared. And maybe you aren't because you live with this. So I don't want to assume anything, but. No, and I think it's just, uh, this is something that I've lived with since birth. I think this is something that a lot of people are just never, especially people with disabilities, but also let's say, you know, people of color, women, I mean, we have not been served by the healthcare system well at all. I mean, like, you know, there's such a history of bias and discrimination that's really resulted in deaths. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this is just another huge amplification of it. And again, uh, you know, I want to bring up this paper written recently by. Samuel Magistros, who's a, who teaches at the University of Michigan Law School, and he wrote about how, you know, about the ethics and the laws about disability-based medical rationing. And he says that, you know, this whole idea of scarcity, you know, scarcity is basically a result of societal decisions, right? Like, mm-hmm. there was a decision to not have a stockpile of ventilators, right? Mm-hmm. In, in times of emergencies. You know, these are all political decisions. Mm-hmm. There are decisions made by institutions and individuals to use pre-existing conditions as criteria for denying people the use of ventilators. So none of this is like this some sort of neutral, like, abstract thing. It's all very much political and very much a reflection on who gets to make these decisions and who has been left out of the political process. How would you like people to be thinking about this scarcity issue? I mean, unfortunately, it's, it's too late. And, and too late for a lot of things. It's too late for us to create a, a stockpile of ventilators. Um, it's almost, I don't. I hope it's not too late for the creation of more ventilators. Although that's, capitalism seems to be having some, throwing a wrench into that as well. 
So we, it looks like we will be facing scarcity. Um, a scarcity, actually, let me rephrase that. We will be facing a scarcity that affects able-bodied white people. <laughs> yeah, I'm so worried about the able-bodied white people out there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm really scared for you all. I'm just, you know, <laughs> hopes and prayers. Hopes and prayers for all you white disabled people. I mean, white non-disabled people out there. I just, all you dears, you know, just... This gender white middle class folks, I just, I'm pulling for you. I am pulling for you. Because <laughs> part of your point is that people who are marginalized have had to deal with scarcity all all the time. These ideas of triage and who gets what and, and, and how you distribute um, a limited supply of things. So what's happening now in our world is people who normally never have to think about scarcity are having to think about scarcity. But what can you offer? What perspective can you offer? Like, what are the kinds of things you want people to be thinking about beyond, well, we should have, we should have been thinking about this earlier, which we should have? I think there are, okay, I don't really have any solutions, but I do know that when people, you know, start with decision makers, have the chance to really develop policies and guidelines, to really be really thoughtful about how does this reflect our collective values? You know, what does it say about us as a people? And I know that sounds very, you know, like kind of touchy-feely, but I really do believe that there must be ways to practice the values that we that we claim to have. And, you know, I know that it's going to be difficult. I know that there will be people that do not, will not get the care they need. And there will be people who will face huge outright exclusion and discrimination. But also, I feel like there's a chance for all of us to step up and say, like, there must be another way that we must use our imagination, our creativity, and our political will. Right? We gotta use, utilize everything we have. And I feel like, you know, at this point, especially for the administration, we haven't seen them really use everything they have at their disposal. I mean, for example, the Defense Production Act. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, let's use that. Let's, you know, I don't understand this whole emphasis of the economy over humanity. You know, I just don't really understand why we care about the Dow Jones and just, you know, all this, you know, stuff that's not going to really be much use if people are dead. And also, I think that unfortunately, you you have some testimony you could give about relying on the kindness of institutions and companies to provide what is needed, which seems to be what the administration is saying, oh, people will volunteer. And while I know people do volunteer and people make sacrifices for others all the time, I think you probably realize that to rely on such a thing is to abdicate responsibility. Absolutely. And also, you know, I get, you know, 
ask you for volunteers, ask you for the public the private sector to help. This is sustainable, right? Like this is not, you know, this is completely voluntary. So we can't rely on it. But the federal government does have, you know, certain powers that should be extended and should be shared with, you know, at the state and local level. I mean, you know, to see what states or local level, uh, local towns and cities are doing, mm-hmm. uh, they're like, we're not waiting for you all. Mm-hmm. We're not waiting for the administration. They're just, you know, getting their shit done. And um, I see a lot of people within the disability community providing mutual aid. I mean, there's so much voluntary collective care that's happening right now, which is hard to see. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful, but also, it's also a really sad commentary that, you know, we cannot trust or rely on the state. And I guess, in many ways, you know, we never should have such trust and uh, a feeling of security for the state. I want to take a, a quick break, and we'll be right back. Is there something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Something? Just, you know, something? Well, if there is... BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Get help on time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, whatever you might be feeling right now, for instance, anything you share is confidential. If you are not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. And BetterHelp has over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states and is available worldwide. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. It's also truly affordable. With friends like these, listeners get 10% off the first month with discount code FRIENDS. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash friends. Simply fill out the questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you will love. That's betterhelp.com slash friends. Alice, um, this is already personal for you. I know. Um, we've already discussed some of the ways it's it's had an impact on you individually. But I want to dive in a little bit more because, you know, it's funny. I've seen interviews with astronauts about dealing with solitary uh, living. I've seen interviews with uh, submariners about how to deal with living in close quarters. It's weird to me, Alice. How come no one's thought, oh, you know, there's a whole community of people who have to deal with the kinds of things that we're all dealing with right now. Why don't we ask them to lead us? I, I mean, shouldn't you guys? <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I mean, again, like, why aren't we on, you know, uh, the news every night? Why aren't we, you know, why aren't we the pundits to give our hot take on this? You know, I mean, uh, really, it's amazing to see so many people finally learn, like, Oh, I didn't know I could do a video conference. Or I didn't know I could, you know, have online classes. You know, you know, you see all these uh, amazing performers uh, 
before they free or live streamed. And, you know, disabled people have been fighting for, like, decades, advocating, like, begging, just working so hard uh, saying we need these kinds of things. And, you know, again, this is really weird. I think uh, this speaks to the, the ableism in our society where, like, yeah. we don't really want to see what disabled and chronically ill and, you know, immunocompromised people are doing. We don't, we don't want to think about the fact that people have different ways of doing things and that, you know, accessibility is not seen as a burden, you know. It really adds to everyone's experiences. And if this is like one small you know, silver lining is something that comes out of this pandemic is the fact that people realize that there's different ways to have social gatherings. There's different ways for people to organize. There's you know, a whole range of people doing amazing things from their home, on their couches, on their beds. You know, I hope that that also wakes people up, that there have been people doing this for years now, just completely unrecognized and undervalued, who have so much expertise. Alice, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. I think you bring so much uh, to the table, and you always enlighten me and make me laugh. And I just, I just, uh, I hope the same things that you hope. I hope that this gives people a chance to rethink the way that other people relate to the world. And I hope you take care of yourself, Alice. Thank you, Anna Marie. And uh, may the force be with all of us. (laughs) Thank you. And that is it for the show. I'm not sure if the month will seem long or short to me or long or short to y'all, but it is a month. It is our annual hiatus. We'll be back in May. If you miss me, I will be on Crooked Media's Instagram feed on Mondays uh, with Instagram stories about self-care, mental health, recovery, all that jazz. So look for me there. And also starting pretty soon is a sci-fi podcast uh, miniseries I'll be doing with Dan Dresner. He was on a few weeks ago. Uh, He is a professor of international relations and one of the textbooks, and it is a textbook uh, that he wrote, is about zombies and international relations. And it sort of talks about how zombie movies give us these lessons about politics. And so we're going to be talking about that book. Uh, for two episodes, uh, and then we're going to talk to Chuck Windig, uh, who wrote The Wanderers, which is about a respiratory-borne virus that kills almost everyone in the world and what happens in the post-apocalypse. He's a delightful interview, and Dan and I are also going to talk about that uh, in political terms. That podcast is called The Churn, and it will be the Churn Pandemic Edition. I obviously want to leave you with a few extra thoughts um, as we part ways uh, for a time. I was very fortunate that a few weeks before this all kind of came into our lives in a very real way, someone very close to me um, 
came forward uh, to say that he had relapsed a few months ago, and he, you know, going to start start now with the sobriety. And uh, that threw me. It threw me pretty hard, and it brought up, well, basically, a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty. And I had these questions that I thought about every day, every minute, every hour. How can I keep him safe? Well, how can I make him want to be safe? That's actually maybe a bigger problem. And how can I be safe if he gets sick again? And most of all, what's going to happen tomorrow? So see, I was thinking those thoughts before you were. We're all thinking about the safety of our loved ones, the safety of ourselves, and the uncertainty of the world right now. And, um, you know, the program that I am in, uh, the 12-step program I'm in, has a whole little prayer about uh, letting go of the things you can't control. And that is a, a wonderful prayer, and it is great to recite it. And uh, it is helpful to say out loud the thing that you want to do. But that whole letting go of what you can't control, which is the thing that you need to do in order to survive right now, I wish I could tell you what that even feels like. How do you let go of fear? How do you let go of uncertainty and worry? How do you, what is that even, I'm getting tense just trying to think about doing it. What I can tell you is this. When I feel overwhelmed with fear or worry or uncertainty, I take a deep breath and I say hi. These are familiar feelings. I can say hi. Um, Don't need to be formal. And I realize that these are friends that I've invited into my life, as it were, these feelings. And I ask them to leave. They don't always leave. They almost always come back. But I've done what I can. That's the only thing I can do. And I remember, it is so much better to be able to feel these things than to not be able to feel these things. Trust me. I went through decades of ensuring that I didn't feel all the things that were scary and bad. And it has only been in the last, well, nine years and two days that I've been able to feel all the feelings. And it is better. It is better to feel all the things. Even even the bad ones. I hope that's helpful. I hope you're okay. And I want you to remember, no matter what, you are here. You are here on this earth. And every new breath you take is a chance to make a new decision about the way you move through the world. And that is all I want for you, is the chance to make that new decision with every breath. And the way that we can all make sure that those decisions are still available 
is if we take care of ourselves. So, please, now more than ever, take care of yourself. <laughs>